Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. In the last three years, there have been a number of unionizing efforts within the coffee industry. Baristas across the United States have come together to organize and demand accountability from their leaders. They've expressed the need to have a voice in decisions such as hiring and firing calls, wage increases, and workplace conditions. We've covered a number of those efforts on previous episodes of Boss Barista. From the Give Me Coffee Union in New York to the Slow Bloom Coffee Cooperative, which is formerly known as the Augie's Coffee Union, we've heard stories from coffee workers and organizers about the many ways in which those in power are threatened by collective action. Not a single one of these unionizing efforts has been without strife or difficulty. The Give Me Union folks were in negotiation with leadership for half a year before their union contract was ratified. All the baristas at Augie's Coffee were fired. Mighty Good, which is a coffee shop in Ann Arbor, initially recognized the union started by its baristas, which formed after one of its employees, Naya Najee, shared that she was being paid less than her white colleagues, many of whom were hired after she was. Months later, the owners of Mighty Goods shut down its retail locations and fired all the unionized baristas. But there's hope in all this. More and more baristas are fighting for their rights, realizing the power of collective action and bargaining. Though unions may have a difficult reputation among workers for any number of reasons, at their core, they're meant to help elevate the voices of those not in power and to give space to workers who are often at the mercy of employers without any support networks. Today, we're chatting with two folks in the midst of a union battle, Zoe Molner and Robert Penner of the Colectivo Collective. Consisting of baristas and other employees, both in Chicago and Milwaukee, The union is still fighting right now for recognition by providing information to employees and garnering support from customers and local representatives. In this episode, we talk about how unionizing efforts began and what it feels like for your leaders to deny your concerns and complaints. The folks at Colectivo have highlighted the myriad ways their worries have been dismissed and their safety put on the line during the COVID-19 pandemic and the union folks are attempting to bring accountability to their leaders and find a voice in the collective. Although they've been fighting for a better workplace for themselves, they've also been using social media to dispel common misconceptions about unions and to keep folks informed and updated on ways to organize in their own workplaces. If you want to hear more from the folks we've mentioned above, as well as from other coffee unions, check out our episodes with the Gimme Coffee Union, with Naya Najee, the Wakwa Baristas, which is the union formed by the Mighty Good Baristas, the Tartine Union, and the Slow Bloom Coffee Cooperative. Here are Zoe and Robert. So before we begin, let's have you both introduce yourself. I'm going to start with Robert, just because Robert was the first one on the call. (laughs) Hi, yeah. Um, I'm Robert Penner. Um, I am a uh, for, now former worker uh, from Colectivo Coffee. Uh, I'm a resident of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, I worked for Colectivo at a couple different stints um, between um, spring of 2016 and then uh, winter of 2017 and then again in from 2019 uh, into 2020. 
Um, and yeah, I was a I was a warehouse and production facility worker there. Zoe, what about you? Uh, so my name is Zoe Mjolnir. Uh, I use she they pronouns, and I worked for Collectivo for just about two and a half years, um, from August, I believe, twenty eighteen through um, October of this past year. Um, I worked as a co- like a cafe coworker. Um, then I was a lead barista or lightning rod, as Collectivo calls it. Uh, and then also worked my way up to being one of the barista trainers for the Chicago market. Where does the story of the union start for you folks? Um, I think it, there's kind of a parallel beginning to the union um, because what I know is that in the warehouse prior to, to COVID-19, um, there was a lot of frustration, um, and this is coming in the fall and the winter of 2019, um, when you know the the co- the, the the workers in the warehouse um, were were kind of being ignored. Um, we've got a lot of complaints about workplace processes, about changes that are being made without you know us being informed ahead of time, um, inconsistent ordering. Um, unsafe work practices and also uh we kept having our um our reviews our yearly reviews pushed back um which isn't good because that's that's how we get our raises and so the more they push those back the less time we have to to in that year to kind of cash in on on the raises that we're we're supposed to get and it was just kind of a thing where it's like Oh yeah, you know, uh, it says in the employee handbook that uh, you know we'll have your performance reviews in September, um, and September comes and goes, and we're like, okay, you know, when's this going to happen? We're asking the the COO uh, Leo, and we're saying, look, you know, when when are you going to do our reviews? We'd really like to have our reviews, and he's like, oh, you know, we'll do them, we'll do them next week, and next week comes and goes, and we're like, Leo, you know, you said we would do our reviews next week where what are we going to do and he's like oh you know we'll do them next week we'll do them next week and they get pushed all the way to december before we finally have to you know like pressure them into to doing these performance reviews and so you know they don't go by the handbook and it's totally a disorganized process and it's just you know one of many plaints complaints that we have uh in the warehouse but it it led us to try and you know seek out different kinds of action we could take. And so me and a couple of, of the other um, warehouse people, um, you know, sought out the IWW, which is the industrial workers of, of the world, um, because they've run some pretty good direct action campaigns in in Milwaukee. Um, and they, they helped us kind of do a, a little bit of a direct action in the warehouse where we, we as warehouse workers compile the list of demands um, that we wanted to to kind of put forward when we went into our our um, our performance review meetings with Leo, and we all went in with the same message, and you know we were able to to win a couple small concessions there, um, and that's kind of really where the kind of interest uh, in, in unionizing, at least from the warehouse end, started. Though we realized later that there was also talk in the Humboldt Cafe, kind of going on at the same time um, about unionizing as well. So we didn't really know that back in the warehouse. Uh, I mean, we talked to the the people in in the cafe a lot and and work with them, but you know, there's there's just kind of a little bit of a communication divide there. So we found out later that you know there was also union talk going on in in the cafe in Milwaukee as well. So 
um, that's kind of where where the the union effort started is is kind of when both of the warehouse people and and the cafe people kind of realized that they were both uh, both thinking about unionizing. Zoe, when did you first hear about union efforts starting? Well, my first clue was uh, around the beginning of the pandemic, a petition started um, that was saying many cafes around the country are shutting down with two weeks pay. We would like to see that happen here. It's unsafe for us to work right now. We need to take a pause and kind of figure out where the company is going and how we're going to safely handle the pandemic. Um, And it got like I think 4,000 signatures between the folks who work within the cafes and our surrounding community, which was amazing. And the company actually agreed to follow what the petition asked for. Um, And I think it was a couple months later, around the beginning of June, um, one of our, one of the other people on the VOC approached me and was saying, hey, we're kind of we're organizing. Is this something you'd be into? And immediately I was so excited about it. Um, and my only real, um, familiarity with unionizing was through the television show, Superstore. And so just kind of just like seeing what that was and be like, I don't know a whole lot about it yet, but started attending meetings and really just jumped on board from there. Yeah. It seems like information is a big component to union efforts, which is something that you folks tackle a lot on your Instagram account, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But I want to talk about the moment that you folks declared your interest in starting a union to the leadership at Collectivo. What was that moment like? It was nerve wracking for sure. Um, I think we had we sent a letter with um, a list of names for people who were on the volunteer organizing committee, and we didn't hear a response back for about probably about two weeks, there was no formal response, but you could tell that there was an energy shift. At least the regional manager in Chicago, uh, we had been very friendly before. We had talked about things going on in our lives. And then the day after the list went out, eye contact went down to a minimum. There was very little conversation. Um, There's definitely a shift in how the, how upper management dealt with us. Yeah, and and there was also a lot of build up to it because you know we had been organizing for quite a while before we went public, and so going public was a big deal for us. Um, you know that 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 was kind of the the result of uh, several months of of work um, and organizing and communicating with union organizers in the IBEW, uh, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, who were unionizing with. Um, and it was, it was a big moment and it was for sure nerve wracking because, you know, there were people's names that were on that list, um, including myself that were not back to work yet. Um, and, and so that was just a a very important moment and, and kind of a turning point in, in the union effort as a whole. What did your letter specify as some of the things that you wanted to see leadership address? So we didn't have um, immediate demands right away because we, the company's so large there at the time there was um, 19 cafes that were open, two were still um, closed down due to the pandemic, but we also have the bakery, roasters, warehouse workers, and drivers. So we didn't quite list demands right away because we figured that we were such a small contingent thus far that we didn't want to make decisions or have big statements 
that not everybody might agree with right away. Um, so we essentially brought our names forward and said, we, we are wanting to unionize and we want to like work together. We would love it if you would recognize us. Um, and that way then we can kind of come up with a contract all together that works for everybody um, rather than kind of putting forth something that was just focused between a few people that were involved right at the beginning. So this was really a moment of goodwill on on your part saying this is something that we're interested in and we want to work together to achieve something that works for everybody. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And and this has never been about uh, destroying the company or, or hurting the company. Um, this has always been something that we want to make a, a collaboration. Um, but but we need to to be sure that you know workers are being treated fairly, that we're being treated with respect, that we're being communicated with. Um, and and so it was it was an act of goodwill, um, and that goodwill really wasn't um, uh, returned. So th- yeah, I mean, just to to kind of like put it in that perspective, we're we're not trying to destroy Colectivo by forming a union, even though that's what the owners and upper management seem to think that we're we're doing. This this could be a really major, um, you know, a, a, a boon for the company to to say, you know, we're we have a, a unionized workforce that's producing some of the best coffee in the Midwest, but that's not on their agenda. I like that you mentioned that because I have talked to other union organizers in the past about the optics of a union, even if management disagrees with the union, the optics of having a unionized workforce are probably some of the best marketing you can ever buy. So it's a it's an interesting, not to say that that's a good reason for recognizing a union, but it's one of those moments where you're like, are you doing anything good for your company? Like why why are you being so negative on so many fronts? Um, which comes back to that moment when Colectivo then responded. Um, which has been covered on Eater and a couple of other uh, local local outlets. And some of the rhetoric that they used in that letter is wild. So I was wondering what that was like receiving the response back from the Colectivo management team. I think wild is a good word. <laughs> um, it, with them being silent for about two weeks, there was a point where you're like, maybe they're not going to respond. That would almost be kind of nice. And then this letter went to everybody. And it was one of those things where like your entire face goes hot while you're reading it. Like you can tell that your face is red and you have so many feelings about it because there's things that are frustrating and things that are kind of demeaning. And yeah, all of this rhetoric that is basically saying all of these things that you have worked towards, we either do the bare minimum, which should be just enough, or we don't do it all, but it's not important. So you guys should just stop. We don't recognize it. This is not for you and it shouldn't be. And it, um, it was pretty demoralizing. Yeah, one of the things that the letter said was that a union would fundamentally change our culture. And I was wondering what that meant, because that was the point, right, was to change the culture, to make it more communicative. So I was wondering what what did it feel like working at Colectivo before that? Like, 
Well, I don't know. This 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 phrase fundamentally change our culture is really bothering me. Yes. Oh, yes. and that was that was the main thing that bothered me too. Um, was you know using yeah like just kind of harping on this idea of our workplace culture, the sacred workplace culture, and and my immediate response was, look, you wouldn't have a, a large portion of your workforce trying to unionize if your sacred workplace culture was so great. You just wouldn't. You wouldn't see that. Um, and so I think that either they're they're trying to to kind of manipulate us with this, or they're just totally out of touch. It, and it could just be a combination of both, quite honestly, um, because the there there needs to be changes in in the workplace culture. You have a workplace culture where um, you know management disrespect of workers is rampant, where there are expectations that are not communicated, and then you're disciplined for not meeting those expectations later that you had no idea even existed. Um, you know, the culture is of not truly fixing things that are broken, not actually fixing equipment or making sure that people are certified or using equipment safely. That's the culture. It's a culture of kind of covering up problems and putting this like kind of hip, shiny facade over um, the, the inequities and, and inefficiencies in the workplace. That's their culture. That's the culture they're talking about. And really what they mean by that is that, you know, we don't want to have to change things that we think are too expensive to change. Mm -hmm. They have a saying in, um, that are in part of their like mission statement where everybody is a customer. Um, and that includes, or it's supposed to include coworkers, but I think a lot of us have not felt that for a very long time where there might be an issue within a cafe and somebody who works there or say within the warehouse will voice, um, what is going wrong, what what issue there may be, and there might be no response from management or there might be a we'll look into it or some sort of placating response and nothing usually happens. But then if an actual customer who is spending their money within the cafe says something, then a change happens. Then you see immediate response. Then you see something that will actually like produce a positive change. So that feeling like we're actually customers and that we're all in this together hasn't really been a through line for quite a while, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I think that that reduces down to power, mm -hmm. which I think nobody, nobody in upper management wants to talk about, right? Like no one wants to admit that this is a power struggle because when you, Zoe, as you laid out, when there's a transaction of money, like a customer is giving us money, therefore we're going to listen to them. But as a coworker, that relationship is, inverse your employer is paying you suddenly those power dynamics get totally shifted so you're treated totally differently mm -hmm. i mean i've heard managers one of my cafe managers not go on a break because the ownership was there and they said like oh at this point i'm just a number i can't i can't go sit down and eat i can't go on a break they have to see me completely working 100 percent of the time and that's just like that kind of culture is super unhealthy and toxic. And it feels like that's the kind of culture that is permeating the company at this point, rather than this supportive, boisterous, everybody lifting each other up and trying to like work in tandem towards positive goals. There's another part of the letter that also is incredibly angering. Uh, camaraderie and respect would be replaced by workplace rules, mm -hmm. which... 
Yeah. Uh, which number one, oh. as you've both laid out, there is no camaraderie and respect. And number two, wouldn't it be nice if some rules were enforced? No. Yeah. You have to take your 10 minute break. Like, what did that feel like reading that? Oh, like seriously, like that, that sounds great to me. And I think that sounds gr- like workplace rules. That sounds great to me because we work in this environment where there aren't these hard and fast rules. And that's so frustrating and it's demoralizing and it's inefficient and it's just not an effective way because it's all off the cuff. So we have this employee handbook and I don't even know, you know, you don't even know if it's up to date most of the time. And, and it could be changed at any time. Right. It's not a contract. It can be changed at any time. And upper management doesn't even follow it. Like I was saying with our performance reviews earlier, they just didn't follow it. Um, And so I think that hard and fast workplace rules sound excellent to me. That would make things so much better for workers at the company. And I don't think they realize that. I think they want to want to come off as these lenient, cool, um, you know, oh yeah, my boss, the owners of this company are awesome. We don't have workplace rules. We just kind of show up and we do our thing and everybody just kind of comes in and doesn't know. That's not actually the reality um, that, that exists in these workspaces. Um, and I don't think that the owners actually realize that. I think probably some of the management does, um, but they're so caught up in their, their inefficient and, and um, really kind of, yeah, like those are toxic ways. It's, it's, they just aren't really trying to make any changes. And it's so much easier to have camaraderie and fun at work when you feel listened to, taken care of, and safe. Yeah, absolutely. And from from all angles, it also seems like rules would be easier to follow, too. Like, if I know that all of my employees get raises in September, like, I can plan a fiscal year around that. I can I'd hire people based on, like, projected, like, I don't know, projected wages and things like that. So to me, it doesn't seem like it's a business decision. It's not about, again, like we were saying, it's not about money, which they talk about a lot in that letter. They talk about how the pandemic has affected their profits. It is 100% about power. Like you were saying, Robert, you, they want to be the people who say, we're cool, we're lenient, we don't need to enforce rules. But that's thinly veiled way of saying we don't want to let go of our power Mm -hmm. we don't want to have to be forced to listen to other people when we want to be the ones ultimately making decisions it's almost like your parent telling you you're doing this thing because i said so and if it was such an issue with money then i think hiring the um labor relations institute for they had two people at least going around to the different cafes having captive audience meetings and those folks charge three thousand dollars per day per person so if money were really the issue, I don't think that they would have turned to the Labor Relations Institute to solve it because that cost them a pretty penny. Yeah. yeah. Did you have to sit in at any of those meetings? Yep. It was, was um, very uncomfortable. Uh, I definitely had to listen to some pump up music in my car to feel like any sort of amount of confidence going into these. Um, we, I was part of one that was at one of the cafes within Chicago, and. There was a lot of worst case scenarios. There was a lot of kind of doomsday talk. Um, And at one point, uh, I talked about the Labor Relations Institute because I had done my homework before going into the meeting and had looked up who was the person conducting the meeting and found out that when he worked with FedEx to 
squash their union that he got paid over $226,000 for about seven months worth of work with them. And he was one of, I think, six people who worked on that um, union busting campaign. And when I said the term union buster, he uh, lightly reprimanded me because apparently that's a derogatory term. And so he got mad at me for using the term union buster, even though they're that company is legitimately on the Wikipedia article front page for like under union busting. It was wild. Oh. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I needed I needed a minute with that. Yeah. Um. Whew. Yeah, it was that a lot. Is, yeah. No, I'm. I and I. And it's it's kind of amazing that you had the foresight to do a bunch of research and come to this meeting incredibly prepared. Um, and I think that kind of shifts a little bit to how you folks have handled your social media messaging. So if you go to the Collectivo Collective page, it's pretty much like a rule book of this is what union busters do to try to convince people that unions are bad. So I was wondering how you folks thought about what sort of message you wanted to portray, because you're sort of still in the middle of this fight. Absolutely. It's, um, it's been evolving, for sure. Um, it's me and um, one other person has kind of been, we've been kind of the main folks who are running the Instagram page um, with varying degrees of help as far as what people's bandwidth has been throughout the past nine months or so, because that's definitely been a variable. Um, and I think a lot of it has just been somewhat responsive to how Collectivo has been handling themselves and what messaging that they have been using. Um, but really just wanting to talk about everything in a positive light as much as possible, because it's, I mean, folks who work for Collectivo are probably getting their fair share of negative union coverage from the company itself. So we want to show the positive side and what things can be done um, and what things we can do despite what union busters or what the company might be saying. So let's talk about some of these things. What are some of the common union busting tactics or rhetoric? Maybe not specific to Collectiva. I'm not sure if you can get too into that, but what are some of the things that you've seen or you've read about that you've talked about on your Instagram account? Well, definitely the captive audience meetings. That was a big one because if they are paying you to be at this meeting uh, and make it compulsory, then you have to be there. Um, So pretty much everybody within the company had to attend one of those meetings over, I think, about a period of two weeks or so. So that's definitely a big one um, because we can only suggest and hope that you interact with our information and with our page, but they can force you to interact with union busting scare tactics. Um, So I think that was probably the biggest one, um, as well as uh, a lot of the rhetoric that, yeah, went into like the couple of letters that have come out um, using kind of doomsday phrasing of some some this union might be the wrong one for you and he, we can it's really hard to remove a union once you're already unionized so like you should just not do it in the first place there's it's just, it feels like there's almost too many things to mention in a way yeah no um i mean what i mean they harp on money a lot and one of the the big things that was just a total lie that came out in in both of their their main letters was the fact that they're, they're saying, oh, well, a union is going to cost you money. Um, you're, you know, your wages are actually going to go down. Um, and first of all, uh, I mean, the IBEW would never sign a contract where our wages actually went down. 
on account of dues, because when you join a union, you do have to pay dues, but those dues would be very small and we would kind of get to choose what we pay based on what benefits that we want as union members from the union. Um, and they said, oh, you're going to have to pay into a retirement fund. Well, that's not true. If we don't want to pay into a retirement fund, then we don't have to. And they're like, oh, you're going to have to pay, you know, a thousand dollars for as a, as a, it's like a trainee fee. And it's like, no, that's for journeyman electricians that join the union. This is a coffee workers union. So all of this stuff you're trying to come up with to make it seem like we're going to have to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars to become union members. It's all, it's all scare tactics. It's all lies. Um, and, and even coming out with, with, uh, propaganda, the, the company saying, we can't, we can't lie to you, but the union can, it's like, no, you've been lying to us this whole way. And you're, you're kind of reversing the, the, the places that you're in because the union cannot, the union cannot make promises. The union cannot, uh, uh, um, tell you untruths because they'll be censured by the NLRB for that. Um, and, and so the, the company is just kind of trying to reverse reverse fields here and and kind of portray itself as you know the 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 thing that's being aggressed against rather than them being the aggressors against their workers and against this union effort um so it's very frustrating and and they're trying a lot of different a lot of different tactics they've thrown the book at us um to to um kind of bust this and make people scared and make people fearful um and and um feel animosity towards the union. It's interesting to hear you both talk about the way that Collectiva has used scare tactics because it feels very applicable to just the current moment in time that we're living in where where you're where you're almost being gaslit essentially about what is true and what is not. 100%. And you have to keep yeah, you have to keep your head above water to figure out like what like I know what's true and I know what is right. And I have these people around me saying just untruths and attacking even the way that I present information. And I wonder for you folks, like how has that felt emotionally? It's incredibly draining. I know that, I mean, we had meetings also with um, the CEO, Dan and um, Leo, who's, who's in charge of a lot of operations and they wanted to come kind of sit down with the Andersonville Cafe. And um, I have had somewhat of an issue for a long time with some of the imagery used in our um, in our like messaging and stuff. They use uh, the sugar skull, which um, is associated with Dia de los Muertos. And none of ownership is Latinx. It's three white men. And so a lot of people don't realize that it's like not a Latinx owned and run company. And it feels um, like there's, it, it just feels a little crummy. Um, and so there's like shirts and all of these things. And so I suggested like a t-shirt buyback program uh, because it felt like there was um, kind of like taking advantage of cultures that don't belong to you. And the CEO was like, mm, I hear what you're saying, but I don't agree. And so it feels like there's a lot of like active listening signaling that happens within the company, but not any, oh, I understand what you're saying. I hear where you're coming from. Let's get together and like, let's make a positive change. Right. So I think if you folks are willing to talk about this, we don't have to talk about it, but both of you were let go at different times. 
and it seems like it was because of your union efforts. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I can go first. I was, I was laid off back in March um, when coronavirus really started to pick up. Um, I, had, I had decided to opt out and I thought I was only going to be away from work for a couple of weeks because um, I, I don't think anybody knew the scope of what coronavirus was going to be yet. Um, so I had opted out for, I think, two weeks is what they gave us as, as the opt-out period. Um, and then shortly after that, I was laid off. Um, and since that time, I had been you know, looking for opportunities to try and get back uh, to work, get back to the warehouse. Um, I knew they they needed help there because um, I, I communicate um, pretty regularly with uh, you know some of my coworkers there. They're they're, they're my friends. I've, I've known them for a long time, um, and and you know they they needed help. They had lost people um, to to the layoffs, to people quitting, and I was trying. I was looking for a way to get back. Um, and so in in the late uh, late summer, uh, I had told my manager. I said, you know. I'm I'm ready to I'm ready to come back like whenever you need me give me a call and and he was like oh yeah for sure for sure we're gonna do it um, and a little bit later in uh, at the end of September um, I finally got the call and and uh, he called me and said hey you know uh, we need you back um, and we're we're ready for you can you start can you start on Monday um, and I was like yes that's awesome I will be there. Um, and I was, I was pretty excited. I was excited to get back to it. You know, not having any income for, for months and months is really, really tough. Um, you know, a lot of, lot of unemployment checks coming in at that time. Um, and, and so, yeah, I was, I was excited, but on, on that Friday, the Friday before I was supposed to come back, I get a call from Leo, the COO. And he says, actually, we're not calling you back to work. He was like, yeah, the manager, your, your floor manager uh, overstepped his, uh, his uh, authority in calling you back. Um, we're going to shift other resources around instead. And I said, well, what, what does that mean? Like, what, like I, know, I know you're down two people in the warehouse, and I know another one has just turned in their two-week notice. Like, what do you mean you're going to shift other resources around? Does this mean I'm fired? What, you like, what's going on here? And he just would not answer any of my questions. And then he finally just hung up. Um, so that, you know, that felt really bad. And then uh, a, a week later on October 7th, um, I got my final termination notice. Um, and so this, this seemed really blatantly targeted because I had been invited back to work because there was a need for me back at work. I, I've been there quite a while. And so I know how to run all the machines. I know all the processes. And I do some processes that nobody else in the warehouse does, uh, including the labeling of every bag that comes out of the place um, and the running of some heavy equipment that only, you know, one or one other person in the whole place can do. Um, and so that, that was it, it just it, it's it's it doesn't make any sense to do that, to, to you know, fire a long time. Um, employee that has a lot of expertise in this area um, and to fill in my spot with people from the cafes, which that's not their job, but that's what they're doing now is the workers that they've lost in the warehouse. They haven't replaced them with actual warehouse trained workers. They just replace them with new cafe workers every day. And I know that the cafe workers go in and do their best. Um, but, you know, you have to have a lot of training and experience with these pieces of heavy equipment to know how they work. 
especially because a lot of them are in disrepair um, and, and just don't, don't get fixed when they're broken. So you really have to have a lot of uh, uh, subtlety and, and grace, <laughs> I guess, in, in operating these machines. Um, and, and so it, it just it doesn't make any sense. And the only reason it makes sense is because I, my name was on the, the, organi- the union organizer list. Um, and I had been extremely vocal. I had been out putting up posters around the cafes, uh, pro-union posters, um, and had, you know, been very much involved in, in the union effort. So I, I, I know why they fired me. They won't ever admit that because that would be retaliatory under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, but, you know, that's, that's how I ended up getting fired. So I, I haven't been an official employee since, since October 7th. And as far as my story, um, yeah, having worked my way up through the company to be one of the barista trainers, um, which I had done for other companies before, so I, it, I'm good at it. Um, I'm not a person who likes to toot my own horn, but um, I'm good at it. And it, it kind of all changed, yeah, when the VOC or the Volunteer Organizing Committee list came out with my name on it, I think, um, because as I said, with our regional manager starting to not make eye contact with me. Um, anytime that I would send out a congratulatory email where somebody would pass their bar certification test so that they could make drinks on the espresso machine completely by themselves, we send those out to the owners and the that cafe, the person who just passed their test, and we write up all of the great things that they have as far as qualities on bar. Um, and people respond back with letters of congratulation and well wishes. And I noticed the CEO either would respond much, much later to my emails than to any other trainer, or sometimes not at all. Um, One of the managers at one of the cafes started to request only the other trainer to work with their coworkers at their cafe. Um, So very much targeted on that. Um, When we got masks that said IBEW strong, they kind of started to I started to feel like I had a bit of a target on my back because they knew that I passed some out. Um, and so it really just felt like all of that, plus with the um, the captive audience meeting, like energy really changed around me. And they had sent out this letter on October 15th saying that two of the cafes were closing and the Chicago bakery, which was planned to be built, um, this past summer, but then was put on hold from the pandemic, was now canceled. Um, It kind of came with no warning. And all of us were in shock. When I went into work the next day, um, on October 16th, uh, I found the new head of HR, who I had never met before, uh, in the, the training lab. And I was kind of taken aback. But you know, it I hadn't met this person, so started kind of introducing myself. And then the um, the head of coffee purchasing essentially um, came into the room as well and said, hey, did you get that email yesterday? And did you have any questions? And me still not getting it was expressing my concern for the coworkers who had just lost their jobs because it was two cafes worth of people who had just pretty suddenly not had income or not had a job to go to. Um, so I was mostly worried about them still. And then uh, came the, we'd like you to sit down. 
and they informed me that my position had been eliminated. Um, when I asked, does that mean I'm done with the company or can I move into a different role? Like I would work in one of the cafes for now if that needs to happen. Um, and they said that there were no positions in Chicago available. And if I wanted to move to Milwaukee, that I could do that and reapply, not be assured a position whatsoever, but I would have to go through the application process after working there for almost two and a half years. Um, and so they gave me information on unemployment and kind of wished me farewell. I didn't get to finish out my day. Um, I had meetings set up throughout that day and things to talk about with folks and hand out as far as um, informational um, things to send people for the cafes. And it was incredibly sudden. I had I was blindsided completely um, and then pretty much past that point did not receive much communication from the company whatsoever. My boss, who I was pretty good friends with, I think, um, never communicated with me. Um, I never got, I don't know, not even a text. I called my other trainer kind of in tears. Um, sorry, I'm kind of getting a little emotional about it too. Um, cause I was, I don't know. I was just so shocked and, um, like I knew that they were going to fight back, but I didn't think they'd fight back like that. Mm -hmm. I think it's completely expected that you would be emotional or that anyone would be emotional because this is a place that you've put in so much time and like we were saying earlier if anything you folks unionizing is this kind of beautiful expression of we believe in this company that we can make it better like we can do something better we can make this better we didn't just leave we decided that we wanted to make it better and instead of being embraced or at least being like hey maybe we don't agree with you but let's talk about this you were told that like you were gaslit essentially you were told that unions would be harmful and would you know harm the company culture and all these like rant like very hurtful lies um and i think that that probably gets missed sometimes this probably seems like a very black and white fight sometimes but it is really emotional and it does involve you know, people fighting for their livelihoods absolutely something that um i wanted to come back to is what you said earlier zoe about your your manager like not making eye contact with you and i think it's so bizarre how conflict is handled when there's a power dynamic so you saying hey not everything we're doing here is totally cool. Like, let's talk about it instead of being like, oh, let's, yeah, let it, let it, let's do that. Let's talk about it. Um, people will just avoid eye contact with you. And I think, like, I wonder what that felt like, because to me, I'm like, oh, this is about something different. Like, this isn't about making this workplace better. It's because I challenged your authority and your ego can't handle it. But I wonder, like, what did that feel like seeing that divide happen? I think that we were all kind of like holding our breath once that voice or that, that VOC list went out. Um, and so we were all curious how folks were going to handle it. And, um, I mean, this person in particular, um, I think I was not the most surprised that they avoided eye contact. Um, I feel like they have, they, they put everything on the line for the company. And, um, I think sometimes in a way where you, they should take care of themselves a little bit more um, and maybe 
uh, I don't know. They, they work themselves to the bone. And so I think that they are fully in it 100%. And if the company was going to be against it, then they were going to be against it too. Um, so I wasn't the most surprised with how they handled it, but it was kind of one of those like, well, I'm here to train somebody. So I got to keep a smile on my face. I got to kind of like keep it up and lively. I'm not going to act like anything's different. So like, let's kind of just like keep this positivity train going. And I guess like pretend that this weird attitude is not really happening. What do you folks want people to know about your union efforts and what should people be paying attention to? Um, Well, I remember that there was a meeting where I think Robert summarized it in the best way that I've heard, um, which is like, we're looking for the three C's consistency, communication, and cooperation. It doesn't like it's, it's not going to be that hard. I don't think once we actually get to bargaining for the contract, because we're not looking for things that are astronomical. We're literally just looking to be on the same team and we're asking for some accountability for not just the people who work on the floor, but for everybody who works within Collectivo, which right now it's not really a two-way street. It's kind of just on the floor workers who gets held accountable. Um, and I think for me, you see a lot of companies with like board of directors, but I would love to see a company with the board of directed because we know the like the things that are going on on the floor and the the issues that we have we know firsthand and i feel like i hear a lot of very good ideas coming from folks who like are down and dirty and like on the front lines and i want to see those things those suggestions those fixes actually put into practice because oftentimes they're very good ideas because they fix practical issues with practical responses Thank you both so much for joining me. This has been an incredible conversation and I feel both inspired and angry. So I think <laughs> we achieved what we were trying to do. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> that was Zoe Mulner and Robert Penner from the Collectivo Collective. Please, please follow them on social media. Along with calls to action, they also give really helpful tips and advice about how to talk about unions, and some common misconceptions that often go unchecked about union organizing. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. 
Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us. That would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.